0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. Six days after Peter said that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, lo, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So as we arrive to this last Sunday in Epiphany, uh, the last Sunday before the Lenten fast begins, uh, we encounter what is, in my opinion, perhaps the most bizarre passage in the gospel, Uh if there's I don't know if anyone else here is like me and we get to this and you have absolutely no idea what to do with it, uh, just alone, that's fine. That's that's all right. Uh I think it's it's this very unique miracle in the life of Christ. And it's it's unique because when we see his other miraculous works, uh healing the sick, uh opening the eyes of the blind, walking on water, calming storms. These are things that, though certainly miraculous and mysterious and in some ways inexplicable, I think these are the kinds of miracles that almost feel like maybe they're just just out of reach, but only just. But then we get to the transfiguration, and this is a miracle that doesn't seem like any, any of Christ's miracles, other than the miracle of his own resurrection. And, and it's almost as if the gospel writers are sort of aware of this when, uh, when, when, they're, when they're writing their uh, their accounts of the life of Jesus because the, the story has a very real flow to the narrative. It's a, you know, there's, there's structure to it and it's it's sort of building towards the climax. But the transfiguration is almost as if you grabbed the climax, threw it into the middle of the story, and then when that's done, you then just proceeded with the story as it continues to build to the climax. It's really uh, somewhat—I uh, don't know. It's really—it it, it always gives me gives me pause and leaves me scratching my head. Uh, and it, it almost—it almost feels like the uh, the writers of the Gospels are saying. Uh, well, we received this story from the witness of, of James and, and John and Peter, uh, but, uh, we don't know what we're supposed to do with it, so we're throwing it here and, uh, hope you can figure it out. Okay, anyways, moving on, right? Uh, that's my impression of it, at least initially every time that I read this story. Uh, but, of course, that's, that's not the actual intention of, uh, Saints Matthew, Mark, and Luke who include this in their account of the life of Jesus it's not merely some glorious moment that they uh, have a sense of obligation to report on because of course the gospels are not merely a report of the life of Jesus it is not some dry history of uh, of of his of his works and teaching uh, the gospels are so so much more than that and so as a result knowing That the Gospels are so much more than that. Uh, It can help us as we reframe or, or try to approach this story. Because ultimately, what the Gospel writers like Matthew this evening are trying to do is to give us a clearer understanding of who Jesus is, of what his ministry is, of the kingdom that he is inaugurating on earth, and importantly, in the role that we, his people, are called to play in that ministry. And so once, I don't know, once I sort of overcome my initial trepidation about this passage, my my gut instinct is to swing the pendulum in the other direction, to want to camp out in this passage for as long as I possibly can. And, uh, you know, I've only... I've only got fifteen or sixteen pages of notes here, so don't no, no need to worry. Uh, and I don't think that's that's a bad thing. I don't think there's there's anything wrong with wanting to uh, to read through the narrative of the Transfiguration and 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 develop some kind of understanding of what it is teaching us about Jesus. That's a very good thing. I think it's it's healthy and it's right to want to see Jesus with clearer eyes as the glorious Son of God the divine and uncreated light whom the prophets and the law have all been pointing at for centuries. That, that the fabric on his body, if it can really even be called uh, fabric, is this brilliant white. It's whiter than white. It's It's light itself that he is arrayed in the glorious and uncreated light that the giants of the faith, the great teacher of the law, the great prophet who spoke of the justice and judgment of God, who instructed the people of God, are now here being instructed by Christ. This is a glorious, glorious moment that then culminates in this apocalyptic cloud that, that shrouds the entire scene with the voice of God, speaking out and declaring the divinity of Jesus of his favor on him not only as his chosen one but as one who is himself eternally participatory in the divine life of the one true god who would not want to like like st peter set up a little shack and and think through every last detail who at some level is is like me and wants to have this same experience of christ this same vision of his glory and so when i get to this story and i and i feel that impulse uh i find it's the same impulse that that saint peter had Uh, and it's almost like saint peter didn't expect that jesus was gonna ever need to come down from the mountain and so he was ready to bundle some sticks together Uh, And revel in that glory, which is what I want to do when I read this story. I want to hold myself up in my apartment and get a a stack of books on the transfiguration and read through every detail and not talk to anyone ever again, right? Because it's, it's out of a desire to understand Christ better that we have this impulse, that we have this longing to be with him at the top of the mountain, to experience his transfigured life. But the glorious light of the transfiguration, the great revelation of Jesus as God incarnate, is not meant to be an experience that keeps us on the mountain. Quite the opposite. It's meant to turn us back to what awaits us down the mountain, to the work of his kingdom, to the ministry that he has come to do. And of course, ultimately, it's meant to turn us to his cross and to, be, and to consider and to ponder and to be confounded by the way that, that what is achieved on this mountain reveals the same glory of Jesus. That the cross is illumined for us by the light of the transfiguration. And so that's what the transfiguration is meant to point us to. And so as a result, instead of merely sitting atop the mountain, I think it may be worthwhile to step down and consider what the experience of the transfiguration does and how to experience the transfiguration in light of of the life of Jesus that we are called to follow and to emulate. And, and to that end, I think it's probably worth getting just slightly technical, uh, and, and getting a sense of what transfiguration itself means. Uh, it's a it's a pretty important word, but it doesn't. I mean, the, the story is called the transfiguration of, of of Jesus, but the the word doesn't have a little definition for us by the uh, by the gospel writers. So it, it's important to note that uh, the word suggests some kind. of... Of change, um, if you if you were to look at at, at the word uh, in the original New Testament Greek, uh, it, you would see that it is the same word that we get the English word metamorphosis from. And so naturally, when we talk about the transfiguration of Jesus, we might be tempted to say that it's that moment in the Gospels when Jesus Jesus changed into something different in front of his disciples but I think it's prob- there's probably a few uh, theological alarm bells going off in, in some of our heads when we think of the transfiguration that way. Uh, because if we're saying something about Jesus changed in the transfiguration, then we're saying that Jesus became something in the transfiguration that he was not before and he was not after. Uh, but this is not the testimony and the witness of the church that declares that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today. And forever, and is unchanging from before the beginning until after the end. And so, if if that's the case, uh, if there is a transfiguration happening, but it's not it's not Jesus who is changing, then what is what is happening? Um, and I, I would I would suggest that it may be more helpful for us to consider how it is the disciples who experience by the power of the Holy Spirit. A kind of transfiguring that allows them to see Christ as he truly is, to see him more clearly. Not that anything about Jesus is different, but something about the apostles is by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit is different in them that allows them to behold the the real uh, the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, that the, the, the human being that they knew is not only the human being that they knew. And so I think if we want to understand that mystery of the transfiguration, if we want to, if, if we want to understand what it is to be like the disciples who undergo the kind of change that prepares them to behold Christ in, in his glory, arrayed in divine splendor, then I think we might want to pause and consider the actual transfiguration that we ourselves experience. Because if we think that there isn't something equally mystical and mysterious and glorious and inarticulable happening when we are here worshiping God and being fed on him when we receive his body and blood, Then I would suggest to us, which is really just me suggesting to myself with a microphone, uh, that we need our imaginations to be expanded. We need our eyes to be open to what uh, is happening in the act of the worship of the church. Uh, So, by way of illustration, uh, let me just shift gears real hard with no good transition. I am not a big fan of mixing metaphors. Uh, I think that if you're going to use a metaphor, then you should use it for one thing and then not use it for something else. Um, I'm obviously a very poetic person. Uh, and so for a long time, I had found myself somewhat somewhat bothered by the fact that the scriptures use one term to, uh, to describe both uh, the Eucharistic feast and the church. That the term "the body of Christ" is deployed in both ways, and for so for myself, for most of the time, uh, or for most of my life, I've been uh, begrudgingly tapping my 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 foot and uh, and biting my tongue as I as I've read it, saying, "You mixed a metaphor, and you're not supposed to do that." Thus saith I. Uh, <laughs> but so you can imagine my joy in realizing that there is no metaphor mixing happening at all actually, uh, that the fact that the Eucharistic meal uh, that, we, that we come and feast on every week and the, uh, and the church are both called the body of Christ is because they are really pointing, ultimately, to the same thing. They're reflecting the same thing. They're meant to be the same thing. As we consume the sacrament, a thing that started out, as one thing, as bread, but is now in a way that words fail to describe something more than bread. We who start out as something else—that is, uh, run-of-the-mill human beings, replete with our uh, with our sinfulness and our and our faults and our and our failures—become collectively something more than the sum of, of our of our parts uh, by receiving that sacrament that by feasting on the body of Christ, we become the body of Christ and we become empowered to do the work that is Christ's work in this world, to carry out his ministry into the lives of our neighbors and those who, who exist in our sphere of influence. And like the disciples who arrive at the top of the mountain as one thing, but are, by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, made able to experience reality more completely, we who gather at the table of the Lord are, by the miraculous intervention of the same Spirit, able to experience the person of Christ more truly and more intimately as we are brought into His life and as we become participants in the renewing work that He is presently doing in the world, uh, if you if you've known me for any period of time, then I have probably chewed your ear off about uh, about a book that I'm particularly fond of by uh, the Greek scholar uh, Andreas uh, Andriopoulos, which I'm, I think may be the most Greek name that anyone has ever has ever had. So that's pretty good for him. Uh, it's his, it's a it's actually a book that's a companion to a scholarly work that he did on the Transfiguration. Uh, the book is called "This Is My Beloved Son," uh, and it, really more than anything, it's a it's a book that tries to explore uh, the church's Eucharistic uh, response to the Transfiguration. And so, since uh, functionally everything that I've said so far has just been a naked plagiarism of his of his book, um, I'll give him uh, some of the credit and go ahead and read uh, from it. Just a just a, a little uh, a short passage, if you will, humor me. Um, that I, that I think may be helpful to us as we, try to, uh, as we try to engage in the process of having our imaginations expanded to better understand and appreciate how the light of the transfiguration informs the worship of the church and ultimately the feasts that we participate in. Uh, he says, there is no better way to describe the Eucharistic offering than to talk about it as the offering of free and unconditional salvation and as the transfiguration of the human condition. However, there are far too many churches, congregations, and parishes in the Christian world that struggle to provide it because they struggle to maintain their sense of the transfiguration. We can visit a Sunday service in a Christian church and notice what is happening there. We will not be able to understand the service if we try to assume a critical gaze that does not leave space for faith. We cannot approach the services only with a scientific eye, as an anthropologist might observe patterns of social interaction in a newly discovered culture. Some faith is necessary just to get started and to enter into the hermeneutics of the mystery. On the other hand, the liturgical service is supposed to cultivate this faith to draw us in and to give us an understanding of heaven and salvation that no words and arguments can convey. The liturgical mystery, this distance between the words that say little and the practice that says much more, is one of the founding and constituting elements of Christianity. For this reason, Christianity needs to expect a lot from its liturgical services, but this is not always the impression we get when we visit a church. Mechanical chanting and saying of the services imply that the power and the revelation are in the words themselves and no further. A pitfall on the other side is to resort to a strong emotional tone that disregards the divine dimension and approaches the biblical narratives and the hymnography as if they were dramatic stories taken from everyday life. We cannot extricate ourselves from the process as if the continuous transfiguration within the church were a magical process that does not demand our personal participation. And therefore, we cannot deny a certain emotional depth in liturgical services. But the fullness of the service is not in our emotions. We may cry, we may rejoice, we may respond in many ways to the continuous drama of Jesus Christ as we live it in the church. Yet if we look clearly, we'll realize that our emotions dance next to the abyss of heaven. The Eucharistic sacrament is a change that makes the entire universe shudder throughout its many billion light years diameter. Heaven opens up in front of us like a tent on the Mount of the Transfiguration, and God becomes present. We have no emotions capable of responding to the magnitude of this event. In the Eucharistic change, we relive the transfiguration of Christ at both a personal and cosmic level. Perhaps for this reason, the best way to consider the liturgical life in its full dimensions is to see it as a continuous transfiguration event. Both in reference to the historical, biblical, and theological transfiguration of Jesus Christ, and also in the context of the experience of the divine light, of that, of the, of the revelation of transfiguration. We do justice to the Eucharistic service only when we treat it with the same awe and reverence with which we would welcome a vision of light. I think that we can think of our liturgical gathering, our life as, as, as Christians who worship. Uh, as, as point. If it's the case that, that that life is pointing us to the altar of God where his people feed on and experience him and his presence, then it is perhaps best to understand it, the liturgy, as, as like the process of climbing up the mountain of being led by Jesus to experience him in a fresh way. And when we get there, we are met with the mystery of his presence in a way that is unlike how we experience his presence elsewhere. We encounter him exactly as he is, fully human and fully God. And the sacrament declares this mystery as it proclaims to us that the creator God is present among his people and that how he is present is somehow, in a way that words fail to articulate, both a spiritual and a tangible reality. That much like the vision atop the Mount of Transfiguration is glorious if nearly impossible to describe, so the experience of the life of the church at the Lord's table is a mysterious and glorious moment that our words just fail to properly articulate. And so I think if it's the case that we are desiring this kind of of vision of Christ, of seeing his divine glory, of witnessing Uh, His his glorious, uncreated light. I think it is probably uh, best for us to begin by learning how to encounter Him in the sacrifice of the Eucharist, of experiencing Him here, of letting the Holy Spirit, who informed the lives of the apostles on the Mount of the Transfiguration, who was faithful to them to allow them to see that which uh which their eyes had previously unseen or had not seen that that holy spirit would be very faithful to us in allowing us to receive Christ here in a, in a in a way that we may not understand but is uh, is still a revelation of his glory that is to say if we want to experience the transfiguration of Christ uh, perhaps we should submit ourselves in faith to, uh, to the transfiguring work of the Holy Spirit among his people here, weekly. And we should pray that this would be the delight and desires of our heart, that we would find ourselves yearning to gather together, yearning to come and commune with God who faithfully meets his people whenever they gather to commune with him. That this would be something that we would not uh, consider uh, uh, trivial or insignificant, but would rather become more and more the very thing that our lives and our weeks and our seasons are organized around. That it would become the joyful priority of our lives is to come and meet with and commune with the living God. because i i think uh to just to just to close uh, i think that this this experience here is one that god calls his people to and and we ought to hear the words of saint peter who says uh rejoicefully it is good for us to be here friends it is good for us to be here so let's celebrate with 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 joy and expectation that we are meeting with the living God and being ever more transfigured into his real body to go out into the world and bring that joy to our neighbors. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.